Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And I've got a lot of things that have been going on this week, and a lot of things that we've been dealing with through the network and the Living Network. And what the network is 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 just generally email groups that are based on geographical areas all over the world. And so if you're in Texas, you'd get on the Texas group. If you're in California, you'd get on the California group. But that's just the beginning. That's just a way of making contact. And then you want to get on the Living Network, which is to actually become a part of a specific congregation. And the part you play is simply a congregate in a free assembly. You're not actually entering into any corporate relationship or anything, but you're becoming a part of a Living Network that was what the early church was doing when they got baptized. They would get baptized, and they would be baptized by this individual or that individual, and they would now become a part of a network because the ministers would connect with other ministers in patterns of tens, hundreds of thousands, as Christ commanded, as Moses commanded, as God directed from the beginning. It is one of the most common forms of self-government throughout the history of mankind. It is the predominant form of government in the history of mankind. If you take in the whole history of mankind, the idea of a centralized government where top-down authority is coming and controlling and manipulating and uh, providing for society by taking away from other parts of society Uh, where some individual or group of individuals has this exercising authority, that is actually an aberration in the history of mankind. It is not what was common throughout our whole history. Even some of the most successful uh, societies did not use that centralized form of government, but maintained this networking form of government, this uh, tens, hundreds, and thousands, and uh, that is just simply removed from our history today. And actually, you know, 50 years ago, you'd hardly even hear about it in uh, history classes. Today, you don't even really have history classes. Nobody's studying history uh, in high school the way we used to study it. And the way we used to study it was already watered down by the time I entered high school back in the early 60s. So... There really isn't a very good understanding of history. There's a lot of rewriting of history books. And and, uh, some of the best history books, I've got one here on the shelf behind me. It's uh, the United States from 1492 to 1892. And it was published in the early 1900s. And it actually has in it actual accounts that were written by the people who were actually living history. And I've got other books up on the other shelf that uh, are actually the actual writings, the, the accounts, the testimony of people, you know, from uh, sailors on John Paul Jones's ships to uh, to preachers uh, working in the missions of America 
actually telling their particular story, uh, as well as people who were kidnapped, uh, captured by Indians, as well as Indians and their their comments uh, of the times. And what you see when you start reading the actual people of history is they're not really much different than us. The same principles, the same, you know, I was reading a letter that was written in uh, Great Britain back at the time of Christ almost, uh, you know, in those early centuries of Christianity. And it was written from an officer and mailed back to his family in Rome. And uh, he was just asking everyday things in that letter because really everyday things that you deal with are the same everyday things that people dealt with who lived history. And it makes history kind of come alive when you when you read it from that point of view. There was another author, Shalom Ash. He wrote a number of different books uh, about uh, biblical characters. And, of course, they're fiction. But he was quite a historian himself. And he understood, you know, like everything from what they would likely eat for breakfast, what would they would do for their daily chores, how that society was put together. And it gives you kind of a uh, very human, personal view of these people of history. And so when you, you start obtaining that view of those people in history, and then you go back and read things like the biblical text, it puts it in a context of reality where it's not like some movie. It's actually like people you know. And you begin to understand what is the motivation and what is the uh, purpose and what is the the daily mission of these individuals, you know, like Peter, Paul. What were they really doing from day to day beyond the flowery language of the King James Bible? And then, then if you study some of the practical things in history, the, you know, the legal system of Rome, how that operated... Uh, the welfare system of Rome, how that operated, what they were doing in the temples. That was when I was attending seminary. I was asking these, you know, brilliant professors and, and teachers, what were they doing in those temples? And you could, I could not get a satisfactory answer. But the question itself, where did that question come from? I knew there was something important about what they were doing in those temples because it was a conflict of cultures, uh, you know, a clash of cultures between Christianity and whatever was going on in those temples. That was another culture. That was another view of life. That was another set of beliefs or ways of thinking. And it was clashing with the Christian way of thinking. And I've had a number of questions and I've been going through them uh, from somebody in South Africa and... Uh, I finally finished the audios on that, although I would have to do a little dressing up because they don't quite fit the... I was limited to five minutes for each of these questions. And so I'm probably going to go through a lot of those questions in, in a great deal more detail in this show and subsequent shows. Uh, but understanding, you know, culture of Christianity, culture matters. And, you know, what is culture? You know, how would you define it? Uh, where are the, the parameters of culture? And it actually has to do with a lot of things. You know, the the way in which you look at the world, the eyes that you receive 
from your parents and from the culture you grow up in. The values that you have, you place on, on certain things. You know, are, are some of your virtues listed as vices in other cultures? Or are all virtues the same no matter what culture you go into? And uh, where where does the culture go wrong? Where does it become a negative influence? Where does it begin to uh, degrade or d- diminish the capacity of society as a whole? Or the capacity of an individual as a whole? Uh, and that, that collective. You know, one of the things that I was talking to somebody about just yesterday is there are a lot of people who are moving towards what they call a collective, a social collective. And what I notice amongst most of the people who are thinking that, who are looking towards this social collective and want the collective, they think that's the answer. They don't understand herd culture. And that's, in a collective, that's what a collective is. It's a herd. It's in nature. If you looked out into nature and you saw a herd or a flock, you would you would eventually, if you were objective, observe that there is a certain culture in the herd, whether it's cattle or sheep or uh, elk or uh, deer or uh, whatever, antelope. They all have a cultural herd instinct that guides them in the way in which they do things, how they move as a group, how they interact as a group, how they protect the group. And one of the things that you find throughout all these different herd cultures or collectives of uh, nature is that uh, their life is not, it's uh, the life of the individual uh, member of a herd is not paramount over the life of the herd itself. The herd as it has an entity of its own. It is a group. If it comes in contact with another herd, it does not mingle. It keeps separate. And this is part of that herd because the the collective mentality of the herd, it doesn't just blend into another herd because there's a relationship that arcs over from one creature to the next in that herd complex. Now, I have cattle out here on the church property there's just a few head of cattle it's very small intimate herd uh has one bull that walks amongst them and uh and they interact well there's also sheep out there in the same field and they interact as well as sheep and the sheep and the cattle theoretically don't mix that's what they always tell you is sheep and cattle don't mix the reality in our field they do mix they actually the sheep like to graze amongst the cattle. And the cattle, when they see the sheep come into the field, they actually go over to graze amongst the sheep. And so they actually have some sort of an interaction relationship, yet they're, they're different species. They're, they, they have no, uh, no herd instinct as, you know, a herd of sheep and cattle. They are separate herds, but mingling with each other. So when you see these things, there are certain principles that carry through this herd mentality where there are still individuals. And, they, and, and amongst the cattle, you see this very clearly because you can 
at least you can tell all the cattle apart. I'm sure it's also in the sheep, but it's sometimes difficult to tell one sheep from the other because they're very similar, although the certain ones stand out. But in the cattle, they they understand the individuality of each member of the herd, but there's also this compromise amongst the herd for the herd's sake itself. So with all that said, where where are we going to go with this idea of the collective versus the individual of uh, of different uh, cultures versus other cultures and where do cultures go wrong so understanding this the underlying values in a culture is very important and somebody sent me an article about five ways Christians can support income mobility and that income mobility another way of putting that is uh is not just income and economic mobility, you know, or even social relationship mobility. And uh, it has to do with the success and failure within society of individuals. So how do, are there five ways that we can support this upward mobility of a group or family within society? And they, in the article, they automatically look at the family as a unit, as a single entity, and of course, Christ did the same when he said, no more twain, but one, that that union of a man and woman creates an actual corporate entity that says it's not two people, but one person, this thing we call a family. And so what are, he supposedly lists these five ways. One of them is strengthen the family and provide mentoring. Well, one of the things that, to take us back to what I talked about at the beginning, was this idea of the network, where you, you join a network in your area, whether it be Oregon or, or actually our Oregon group includes Washington and Idaho. Our California group includes Nevada and Arizona. If we eventually, those groups got so big, we would break them off and Nevada would have its own group and Arizona would have its own group. But right now we combine those. So anybody getting on those groups would have access to everybody else on the group. We kind of try to protect their identity, but they can get to know them. But that's just an email electronic network entirely dependent upon Google because it's a Google group network. And so what you want to do is create that living network. And then you do this by forming free assemblies, these what we call congregations. And what the, is listed as congregations in the Old Testament. And that's ten families gathering together and picking a minister. And that minister should immediately gather together with other ministers, nine other ministers like himself that are serving congregations. If they're all in California, that would be great. But if they're not, then you have a network that reaches out, California, Texas, Oregon. And those ministers are connected and they pick a minister and that minister now becomes an overseer of a hundred families because he serves ten ministers serving ten families each. So that's that's the basic outline of this group that they call the tens. Uh, in Old English, they would be called the tunes. Uh, in Latin, it'd be the detin, uh, which is, again, ten. It's where we get the word diaconus, uh, which is the word we translate into minister. Because they were ministers of tens. But that they were ministers of ten families. 
and families a family unit included from early history it always included the eldest father of the family and his married sons and his unmarried daughters that was a family that could that could literally be a hundred people counting the children but that would be that elder of that family and one minister serves them along with nine other families like that and this is how they formed a whole nation but it was a free assembly it was a voluntary assembly like a voluntary fire department or a voluntary uh, uh, you know a police department or whatever uh, and actually because these were ways in which people gathered as a government those congregations were the voluntary fire department the voluntary police department because they had to, by the command of God through Moses, or the command of God through Jesus Christ, they had to love their neighbor as themselves. And the way in which they did this was to gather in these free assemblies. So in our network, we have a few people that occasionally try to post to the whole network to kind of say, yeah, I'm here, I'm inviting you to come to my house or meet up with me and all this stuff. Well, the reality is that's not the purpose. It's for you to create your own private network of friends and buddies. It's to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which was what the early church was doing by organizing the people in the tens, hundreds, thousands, as Christ again commanded. The only place he uses a particular word for commanded in relationship to telling people what to do was when he told his disciples he commanded them to make the people gather in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Now, most people don't even know that's in the Bible. Most preachers, if you brought that up, they wouldn't even know that's there. But the same preachers who wouldn't know that that's there in the Bible, actually in more than one place, in the New Testament, also don't know what the weightier matters are when Jesus lists off the weightier matters. And condemns the Pharisees for not attending to the weightier matters. Here you come along and most pastors cannot tell you. They've read the Bible. They've studied the Bible. They may even have a degree from a college in the Bible. But you ask them, what did Jesus call the weightier matters? And my experience is I can't find a single preacher who knows that without me counseling them ahead of time. (laughs) So... That's a serious problem. And so, anyway, we're, we're going to go over these uh, seven questions from South Africa, but we're going to relate them not only to South Africa, which is facing a great deal of difficulties in the future. Everybody in South Africa is going to be facing huge, difficult problems because of a clash of cultures in that society. And the reality is the same spirit that we see rising up in that society is rising up in societies all over the world. I see it in France. I see it in Sweden. I see it in Canada. Uh, I just saw a story uh, in Canada that shows the same spirit rising up in Australia as well. I saw it in a news item just last night in Australia and certainly in America all over the world and and uh, and uh, and China as well, and so understanding where cultures go wrong 
is going to be part of this this series that we're going to be talking about. And so the first thing that this uh, author says is that we should be strengthening the family and providing mentoring. And who should mentor the family? Well, other successful families. This is why the ministers should be the husbands of one wife and their family should be in order. You don't want to be... I, I remember a woman who was going through a divorce and uh, she was a neighbor. And so she went to the county psychologist, I guess it was, uh, over in the next valley. And the county psychologist said, oh, don't be worried about your divorce. I've just went through my third divorce. So this is the person who is going to advise this individual about how to deal with life's problems. And they evidently have had three divorces. You really don't want to be taking marriage advice, generally speaking, from somebody who's had three divorces, in my personal opinion. Now, you could say, well, they've already made all the mistakes. Well, actually, there's there's a lot of mistakes you could make, and they probably haven't made them all. But anyway... But somebody who has stayed married and had a successful family, that's who you probably want to take marriage advice from. (laughs) Not a guarantee. Ultimately, you want to take marriage advice from the Holy Spirit. But this interaction with successful families is so important. And yeah, you can learn from other people who have screwed up and made mistakes, especially if that's the, you know, they said, well, you know, I probably wouldn't have had my divorce if I had been more forgiving. Well, you might be able to listen to those individuals and learn from their mistakes. I used to always tell my children, two ways to learn things, easy or hard. Well, the easy way is to learn from other people's mistakes. The hard way is to learn from your mistakes. So culture and providing that mentoring and the interaction with families on sometimes very deep levels. Uh, many of the home churches and and, uh, and churches they they interact, but they don't get down to deep levels. And when we take a look at some of the scripture and what it meant to the people at the time it was written, how it was affecting their lives, that's going to take you deeper into the scriptures, and that's where we're going to go with this. So the second thing that uh, this author. Uh, talks about that helps the Christians uh, support this upward mobility in society or economics or whatever, is support exceptional education. Well, that means education of your children and even education of yourself. Because your education should, should not stop at 12th grade or when you graduate from college. Your education should go on throughout your life. But this exceptional education, certainly it says in the Bible, fathers teach thy sons. Uh, That's very important because the next generation, what you teach them, what you show them, is actually going to prepare them so that they make less mistakes as they get older. And they are more successful. Where your upward mobility and the education of your children is going to make a huge difference in society. And that upper mobility may be simply so that you become a more valuable member of society and not simply you get richer, but you become more valuable to everybody else in society. 
We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, we're talking about the five ways Christians can support income mobility, specifically of their, their families. And that income mobility means value to the family and the value of the family to the rest of society because this is a cultural-related concept of where you stand in the herd, where you stand in society, where you stand out in the field. Do you stand in a place of prosperity for the for the rest of society, or do you stand there simply as prosperity for yourself? So that strengthens the family when it's a, a virtuous prosperity where it's not just for your gain, but for the gain of everybody around you because you have the principles of the kingdom written in your heart. So this, the second thing was support exceptional education. And we often point out that homeschoolers score 30% higher than the average kids in education uh, in public schools. Even in private schools, they score higher than kids in private schools. And most homeschoolers are just beginning to learn how to be homeschoolers, how to teach their children at home. And they try all kinds of different ways to do this. And some are more successful than others. And what uh, we've seen a lot developing in the, the last uh, decade or so is that homeschoolers are gathering together in kind of homeschool clubs or homeschool associations, and they're helping each other. They're sharing cur- curriculums, they're sharing experiences, and then, of course, the homeschoolers are, are interacting with other homeschoolers and learning uh, from that interaction. And uh, so that, again, going back to the first thing of strengthening the family, it also includes providing mentoring to the family in the area of home education. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't send your kids to other schools. In some countries, it's illegal to homeschool your children, so you might be sending them to schools like Waldorf schools, which are very popular in Sweden and a lot of other places. They're actually very popular in the United States. But they used to involve a great deal of uh, parental involvement. Uh, The parents were involved in the education of the children. In some countries that are starting to take money from the government uh, to finance the Waldorf schools, they see parental involvement dropping off as soon as you start receiving those funds from the government. And the contributions of the family begin to decrease as the government begins to help out the Waldorf schools uh, with more funding. You can go back, uh, and we've done studies on this, and we've looked at studies done by others on this. You can go back to welfare. used to be taken care of almost entirely by uh, churches and charitable philanthropic organizations. And then the government got into the welfare business, started helping out these institutions by funding part of their programs. And next thing you know, uh, they began to take over that and the churches began to do less and less of that and are less and less involved in these reforms of society where people have difficulties or are falling through the cracks or, you know, unwed mothers, whatever, the welfare of society. 
becomes less and less a part of the role of the church, and then the church really just gets into the entertainment business. Uh, with some reference to morality and the Bible and all that, but the early church was the entire social welfare of Christians. Because the only other social welfare that Christians could depend upon, or anybody could depend upon, was the like the Roman welfare system, or the one run through the temple by the Pharisees, which was the Corbin of the Pharisees. But Jesus said that system that they had instituted was making the word of God to none effect. The original Corbin in Israel was free will offerings. That's that's the way they described it in the New Testament. We use the word charity. But that was one way of taking care of the welfare is through charity. The other way is to do it through taxation, which is forced offerings. And, of course, that's what John the Baptist was talking about. Until John the Baptist, everybody was trying to establish the utopia of society through force, through exercising force, exercising authority one over the other. But John the Baptist said, no, do it through sharing, through, you know, if you have extra, share with those that don't have enough. And that's what we see the early church doing, and we'll talk more about that. But this... Uh, exceptional education has to do with teaching your children these precepts and concepts from the beginning. The third thing he mentions is focus on developing skills and ability. Early Israel, they would not only teach, you know, the is- Israelite language and how to read and uh, scholarly pursuits, including mathematics and navigation, but also hand skills. It was very popular that if you went on to get a scholastic education, that you also took some sort of shop or some sort of skill, whether it was pottery or tent making or or uh, something with working with your hands, that you could actually make something physical and see that physical representation and production right in front of you. I remember I used to build fence occasionally for people. I did almost everything to make a living <laughs> out here. Uh, at one time or another, and but building fence, you build seven miles of fence across the desert, and you get to a certain point, and you look back at that fence, uh, running back over the hills, uh, or sometimes through woods and stuff, and you see every single post disappear, every single, you know, they're all in line for miles, and that gives you a certain satisfaction, because you actually see, I did that, I built that. You did the same thing in carpentry, you know, you would do all kinds of work and then you put up all the walls and you see it form and everybody is so impressed on the day you put up all the walls, but there was a great deal of preparation for that, a great deal of work that went into that point. And then you know that just the outside walls, even though that's impressive for people driving by, you know there's still all the work inside <laughs> that you have to do. So anyway, this, uh, but, there's a certain satisfaction in seeing those actual physical skills, not just the ability to do the math, to draw the drawings, to calculate how much you need to pour the cement and, and the foundation and leveling, all these other things. It, there's both the skill and ability. You have to do it. You can't just read books. You have to actually apply skills in some form or another i was talking to one of our ministers out here just the other day and i was explaining that when you go out and you're irrigating and i've given this job to uh 
visiting ministers, you know, to go out and irrigate and to see this process of putting water where there was no water before, putting water to plants that are thirsty and turning fields from yellow to green. And that's what you're doing in the ministry is that you're you're redistributing things in a way to improve uh, society. And the same as you're trying to uh, improve the pastures that are out in the field. If you put too much water in one place, you'll get one kind of grass. And if you don't put another enough water in another place, you'll get another kind of grass. And you want a variety of grasses, but you want productive grasses. You want healthy soil. And you have, in order to do that, you have to distribute the water wisely. That's the job of the ministers. Because remember that Jesus was preaching a government that was going to rightly divide the bread from house to house. So that's a skill too. And so though all these things are skills interacting in the whole community, in the whole communion of that community. So yeah, they develop skills of all sorts, shapes and sizes so that you can have the variety that you need for a healthy community which, again, strengthens the family. Okay, the fourth thing he says is help establish habits that foster success. Well, this this is a really a key element, is how do you establish those habits? And one of the ways is the way in which you organize your society. You can have a habit of, of, of sloth and not uh, taking care of the weightier matters that Jesus talks about, or you can have a habit of attending to the weightier matters. That becomes important. And so it's one of the things we, we give our children is chores. They were taking care of the chickens, or they were taking care of the sheep. or they. And if they did a good job, it would show up. If they did a poor job, I mean, critters would actually die if you did a really poor job. You, you, you know, egg production of the chickens would drop off. And you say, why did the chickens drop off so much? Are you feeding them? Are you making sure they have water on the hot days? Are you making sure there's shade where they can get cool? Um, they have to apply in in some sort of creative discipline and uh, to foster success. And the, su- the success is actually measured in the, the animals that they're taking care of. And it can be the same way in the garden. You know, if they're weeding and they're watering and they're hoeing and they're adding compost, it will show up. And so, yeah, I knew somebody from uh, Guam who was uh, had five sons. And he had each one have a section of garden that they were supposed to take care of. And he could see, and this, and they could see who was doing a good job and who wasn't doing a good job. And, and that's part of that education process uh, and how to discipline yourself to foster success another thing he lists under that is uh, hard work and uh, perseverance uh, in playing the role of a farmer or uh, horticulturist or whatever it is that you're doing Uh, you know if you want strawberries you have to shovel manure it's not exciting to shovel manure, but that's what you're going to have to do if you want to have the strawberries. So you have to learn that you don't just do what you want to do. You do what needs to be done. And then if you have a larger family, one of the rules we always had is until your chores are done, uh, 
until everybody's chores are done, your chores are not done because you're that out there not just to do your job, but to help others get their job done. And if these are these are things that we often had to repeat more than once. But all my kids have gone on to become successful at whatever they did. They never went to school a day in their life. Uh, most of them, the first classroom experience they had was as a teacher. Um, how did that come about? Well, it was. We didn't know what we were doing when we started, but we learned a lot from other people, and now we want to help other people learn the same thing because we see a success coming from that homeschooling effort and the time and the energy that we poured out into it. And we can show you other kids who graduated valedictorians or salutedictorians and went on with scholarships, and they never became successful. They they've their lives are just in total disarray they're unhealthy uh they do not have any upward mobility why was that why uh, grown up in the same area knew a lot of the same people some were successful some were not a lot of that comes from basic simple things that you know these disciplines that you can bring to the culture of your family and the culture of your immediate family groups, your, your the people that are around about you, and they will produce one result. If you go this way with these disciplines or the lack of them, you will get another result. All, ultimately, the children have the right to make choices, and you have to give them that right to make choices uh, so that they can learn from those choices that they make, whether they make good decisions or bad decisions, they, but you want to give them the tools and the skills and that, so they can develop the abilities to be successful in their life. And then they will produce successful families. Uh, now they can always turn and start going the other way. And that's why you want to do this in a, uh, multitude of counselors way, uh, providing that mentoring. And that's is what they did when they met in these congregations of tens, hundreds, and thousands. They were always interacting with other people that were on the same road. When you isolate families, uh, where they don't, you know, they they don't have to get together for entertainment anymore. They don't need a Grange Hall. They just turn on their radio or their DVD or their or their. Uh, TV or their whatever it is that they use for entertainment. Their food is all obtained from grocery stores, you know, or restaurants or whatever, or junk food that they get from um, places where they eat. All these things can have a long-term effect on the individual, therefore on the family, therefore on society itself. And this is a part of what we call culture. So anyway, the last thing that we see uh, listed here is promoting saving and faithful financial stewardship. Well, you know, this idea of, uh, saving and faithful financial stewardship, you can, let's, let's translate that into your physical body. You have a physical body, you put food in your body. That's an investment. You're investing. When you eat a meal, you're investing in your body. You're making a deposit in your body. And your body is going to consume that which you put into it. And your body is going to operate, and, and of course that includes your mind, 
based on what you put in. If you drink a bunch of alcohol, that's going to affect you physically, mentally, and even spiritually. If you uh, eat a bunch of sugar and carbohydrates and, you know, you just have an unbalanced diet, that is going to affect you too. So the same principle we see in this idea of not just saving money uh, financially, but investing in yourself. And of course, now remember, we go back to the first item. You're a family. Your family is an entity unto itself. So you have to invest in the whole family. What you put into yourself is affecting the whole family. If you if you eat with a, a reckless abandonment and not for your, the health of your family or the health of your body, you will affect your whole family. You will pass on that spirit of gluttony or self-indulgence to your whole family. Well, in the herd of society, in the culture of society, when you do this to your whole family, you do it to the whole of society to at least some degree. So all these things, the upward mobility of the individual within the family and within society affects the whole of society. So what do we do in our culture and the way in which we gather that we will constantly be moving towards those things that strengthens the whole of society and what could we do or what we might do will actually weaken the whole of society when we look out into society today people talk about millennials and talk about people you know uh, that want socialism because they think socialism is good and everybody wants socialism i saw that this morning somebody was interviewing people everybody wanted socialism thought we should have more socialism except somebody from the Soviet Union who wanted no more socialism. <laughs> they thought socialism was bad. They actually had a, a, a deep experience with it. Uh, we just talked last night about uh, a movie with Robin Williams in it where he was, uh, I guess, in the Soviet Union and eventually immigrated to America. But in the Soviet Union, you would, if you saw a line, you would get in the line because... You know, it was handing out something. You were going to be able to buy something if you got through this line. And then you could trade that for something else. It was always, there was these shortages. And then when he got to America, he looked on his little list. And he was supposed to buy coffee. And he got into the coffee aisle. And he actually hyperventilated because there was so many choices. And so many, you could have as many cans as you wanted. <laughs> it was so different. Now, Venezuela, and we talk about what's happening there. And uh, people say, well, well, that's because of corruption. Well, the fact is, is power corrupts. And socialism requires that you give power to somebody to distribute the value of society. And that offers you a guarantee that you will receive value whether you produce it or not. And so what happens is two things. One is you have certain lazy people who are not working not putting in the all, not doing their chores, not doing what they need to do, and still getting paid for it. And then you have other people working really hard, but only getting the same amount that the other person who did not work got. Then that promotes jealousy and envy. While at the same time, you've given power to make these decisions to a third party who is corrupted by that power, which we see from from Cain to Saul to 
to society after society, if you were to read the Bible, like I, I've asked many people, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? And all kinds of people come up with all kinds of answers. Almost nobody actually comes up with the answer that is actually in the biblical text, including people who claim to be Bible scholars. But the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was in a time of affluence. They did not strengthen the poor. And of course, you know, you can you can go back to the congressional record that uh, LBJ, who signed, uh, reluctantly signed the Civil Rights Act, had in mind that he was going to start this war on poverty, focus on the black communities, and make the black community addicted to voting Democratic, because he was a de- Democrat, because he knew that, that that welfare would addict them to the Democratic Party and voting socialist, even though he also knew that it would undermine their society. It would break down their family because, and they actually designed the system of, uh, so that it would do that. If, you, if you're a divided household, you'll get more money. If you're a, a strong family unit uh, and you don't divide, then you end up getting less money. Uh, I heard an interesting statistic last night in some of these countries. Uh, I'm not sure if it was... Uh, well, actually, it's, it's going on in the United States as well. I know it goes on to some degree in Australia. They actually pay uh, parents $1,000 uh, a month for their child care if they're on welfare. And... Uh, they will actually allow them to work at the daycare and receive, you know, a thousand dollars. They only work part time and receive a thousand dollars a month per child. So somebody with eight children, and they were giving the example of a Muslim woman who had eight children, sending her kids to daycare was receiving eight thousand dollars a month for taking care of her children part time. <laughs> and, and you. You know this is going to weaken society. Of course, there's a great many people, you know, you hear it coming from mosques. They talk about outbreeding and taking over. And and that's, you know, Muslim religion is not just a religion. It's a political, uh, you know, it's a political system. It's a a political activism uh, because the idea is to eventually take over politics and everybody will have to become Muslim. And they've done this for hundreds of years, century after century, in many parts of the world. And so the idea that they're not going to do it here, or not going to try to do it here, is is ridiculous. And I'm not picking on Muslims. It's just the way it is, you know. We're just saying what they, they say. We're quoting them. But the reality is they think that this is really good because it allows them to have these large families and get supported but it will actually weaken them in the long run. Uh, when uh, Muslims were rising to power in Europe and other places in, in Africa, they, weren't, they didn't have these welfare systems. Uh, they were having large families and expanding and, and disciplining those families uh, to think in the Muslim uh, mindset, but they weren't receiving welfare to do it. And so... The, so there's actually two processes going on that will actually be undermining them. But yet, for, they will uh, reap some uh, immediate success. But these are cultural things where you just add one more factor to your culture 
and you can degenerate that culture. You can go from a culture, the black culture after the Civil War and the first part of the 1900s, only maybe one and a half to three percent of black families or children were being raised in single parent families. Now 75% are being raised in single parent families. And statistically, as a part of your culture, we know that children raised in single parent families are more likely to be involved in crime, more likely to be involved in drugs, more likely to not have a solid family of their own when they grow up, uh, will be underachievers in uh, scholastics. Now, it's not a guarantee. It's just a statistical reality. So, to have broken families, not strengthen the families, will take society in a downward mobility and will affect society. So anyway, in the next hour, we're going to start looking at South Africa and these, these seven questions. And we're going to relate that back to some of these things we just discussed and relate it back to the gospel itself and the kingdom of heaven. And hopefully relate it to all other societies throughout the world that are facing some of the same problems in different degrees that we see going on in South Africa. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom of God and we're talking about culture. And uh, one of the things that we're told uh, is to uh, to preach the gospel to every creature. You know, it says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So what are they really talking about there? Preaching the gospel, that would be the good news. Uh, go into the world, it actually is means constitutional order or system of government. That's the word they're using there. So you're going into other governments and other systems. And many people are already bound in those systems. They're already entangled in the, uh, the elements of the world. Again, the same word, constitutional orders and systems of government. Every time you see the word world, it's not that word in the New Testament. But uh, so where that word is used, it's important because it, it doesn't mean planet. It actually means what you created. You know, if you went into Sodom and Gomorrah, you would be going into that world that had a, a constitutional arrangement and a government and a system and... Uh, and when you entered Sodom and Gomorrah, you'd be entering the world of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you went to Rome, Rome was a constitutional order and system of government. So you could go into Rome, into the Pax Romana, or you might go into Great Britain where they had another government. and uh, Or you might today go to Australia. Wherever you go and you're preaching the gospel, you're to preach it to every creature, it says here in Mark 1615. So what is that word creature? Uh, How is that defined? It it actually is the act of founding and establishing or building. That is what the definition of the word means. It is translated creature many times, but it's also translated building or creation. Uh, It's even translated ordinance because often when you create or establish a government, you also do this by establishing certain ordinances, certain things you have to do. So you're supposed to be bringing the good news of the gospel, the way of the gospel to everything that is constructed in the world, in the constitutional orders and systems of governments of the world. 
uh, on this planet. You go into every wherever you go, if you're in Australia or if you're in Mexico or in Sweden, you should be bringing the principles and values and uh, uh, you know virtues of the gospel of the kingdom into every institution in that world or that system of the world. So if you're like if you were to create a corporation, you're in the United States and you started a business and you were to create a corporation that uh, would have certain bylaws, you should see evidence in those bylaws of the precepts and principles of the gospel of the kingdom. And so you would have rules in there that would not be covetous, uh, would not be abusive, would give everybody a, an opportunity to manifest the virtues rather than vices. You'd be supporting that. So that is preaching the gospel. That is preaching the good news, the character of Christ uh, in that system. So you would be empowering people to make choices, uh, good choices that would that would be rewarded. And when they make bad choices, usually that's going to bring a reward in itself. But you would not be encouraging people to, like, divorce. Uh, You would not be, you know, giving uh, bonuses to everybody who got a divorce within the first five years of their marriage. I mean, that's an absurd rule. But the reality is, is that you can have a lot more subtle rules that would encourage, you know, uh, uh, immoral behavior, non-virtuous behavior. behavior actually encourage vice and selfishness and some i've seen some people running businesses where they get very competitive and you get promoted if you put the other guy down if you beat the other guy it's not just a matter of producing more it's about uh challenging or even undermining others and i give you an example in history amongst the uh, spartans that uh, they would there'd be a period of time where young spartans would be kind of bivouacked. They had to find their own food and uh, and support themselves, uh, so to speak. And they had certain tasks that they were given. And they would have to steal food sometimes in order to survive. And that was perfectly acceptable in the training of these young Spartans. But they were punished if they got caught stealing. Not because... They stole, but because they got caught at it. They weren't good at it. So that would be not preaching the kingdom, <laughs> so to speak. So that just gives you a little heads up on that. You can, you can apply that any way you want, and you probably will anyway. So that culture is the art and other manifestation of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. And it's actually not just art, but it's the customs, arts, social institutions, you know, what you create, and the achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group. So, like, we, this morning on Facebook, we saw that, uh, you know, I've talked about it before, there's a volunteer rangeland fire department out here that was created, and a lot of people are volunteering, they They've accumulated equipment, uh, they've painted the equipment, they've refurbished the equipment, and they, they've been on uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of fires. First responders on these fires put them out, had a 
Transformers blowing up and sending off sparks in several places in the county this year. And uh, they were there right away putting out the fires and, and making sure that it did not get out of control. There were machinery that got on, caught on fire. There were fires that we don't even know how they started. But they were first responders and they were putting them out. And this is the first year that they've actually been working. They've already put out dozens and dozens of fires that could have got out of control and, and uh, done millions and millions of dollars worth of damage. And it's all volunteer fire department. Well, that's kingdom. They could have just said, let's put this on the tax rolls and we'll tax everybody in the community. Another another valley nearby, they did the same thing a number of years ago. They actually wanted a community hall. And uh, they had seen another town south of us build their community hall with volunteers and donations from the local mill and 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 somebody came up with architect plans so so very little money was involved but they built a very nice community center and they've upkept it uh pretty well and it's a pretty small little town another town to the north wanted to do the same but they said well let's just create a fire hall and that will be our community center we'll just pull the trucks out when we have events and we'll put it on the tax rolls and we'll we draw this huge map where we include all these areas and they'll be in our tax district even though we may never ever get out there to put out a fire because it's so far out and we'll be able to build our community hall well that's not kingdom <laughs> so you know it's like the cemetery uh you know it was it was dry land cemetery there was no grass there there's no sprinkler systems there was no water or anything because this is old cowboy cemetery and people wanted to fix it up cut the weeds and you know, they dress up the graves with rocks around them and all this stuff. And we volunteered. We had nobody buried there, but we volunteered to help. And we were going to help. And then we found out they were putting it off, putting it off. And we said, well, when are you guys going to do that? Well, it's it's going on the tax rolls. Uh, so now everybody in the county is taxed so that they can they put down a well and put in a sprinkler system. And they pay a guy to come and mow the the you know, the cemetery, but it's all done by taxation, forced contributions. Well, that's not kingdom. Volunteering to do it with your neighbor, that's kingdom. What would be the result if we all got together once a year and we dressed up the the cemeteries? Well, we would all be out there working with each other. We would know who was volunteering, who was helpful. Uh, people would bring equipment like we do with the fire department, and it would create community. It would strengthen the community. Our children would see us all helping each other. We might even make a potluck out of it, a picnic out of it. And it, it would be a good time to go out and help the whole community, even though you had nobody buried there. You, your neighbor did, so you, you cared about what your neighbor cared about. That's going to create a different spirit in society, in culture. So it's become a part of culture in America. Put it on the tax rolls. Make, let government do it. And we'll just stay home and watch TV and surf the internet. Of course, there wasn't internet back then. <laughs> anyway, the point is, is these things, these choices are affecting your culture. You know, it's defining your culture. It's going to define your family. It's going to define where your children put values when you make choices in certain ways. So this is what preaching the kingdom to every creature actually means. 
And so we're going to look at a lot of these uh, these other things as we go through these seven questions from South Africa. Uh, but the customs, did you have the custom of coveting your neighbor's goods by putting every single social welfare program you want on the tax rolls? Or do you have the custom of volunteering to get together to do it yourselves efficiently and charitably? Which way? Because the second way that I just listed there is what John the Baptist would preach. The first way is what Nimrod would preach. You can't be a Christian and go that other way. Because remember, Christianity is a way. So which way are you going? So in whatever society you're in, now you take a look at your society. What are you doing that you could have done together by coming together as a community? And what are you doing that you shouldn't be doing that actually empowers somebody else to make choices for you? uh, And makes choices for your children and the future of your children. And so we talk about, so that's, that's a custom. The other thing was arts. Well, arts are all kinds of things. You know, if you... If you clean up the highway out in front of you, uh, you pick up all the trash, you know, that's, you're beautifying the local community. Well, that's part of arts. Arts isn't just making a statue or painting a painting or whatever. But actually, if you look out into society now, what they claim is art is often ugly, degrading, humiliating, um, despicable. And, uh, you know, I, I don't even want to list off what they are calling art today. And, uh, you know, I look at some of, you know, even Picasso, when Picasso was painting, his original paintings were just fabulous. His landscapes, his paintings of communities, his painting of people showed excellent ability. When they started getting into cubism and this bizarre, surrealistic type painting, uh, you know, I started thinking, well, I'm sorry, I don't see the art. You know, and they, they talk about relative and, and, and all these different, you know, views and everything. They are snowing you. They they are they are just seeing what, you know, I'm not saying Picasso was doing this, but the art dealers are seeing what they can get away with and what outlandish stuff they could produce. But anyway, art is not just paintings. It's It's how you you know, uh, paint the world, how you uh, paint society, how you affect society. Are you making society better or are you making society uh, more ugly and degenerate? Uh, Social institutions. Again, most social institutions today are are public institutions, social welfare, etc. Social institutions used to be, for Christians, used to be the church. That's where you went for welfare. That's where you went when you lost your job. That's where you went when you got sick uh, or anything. And it's amazing. You would be amazed at what solutions you can come up with if you do these things through a voluntary system of, uh, of charity. If your, your, your medicine is driven by pharmaceutical companies who are out to make a buck uh, more than they are out to save humanity you're going to get a product that will make them a buck, but will probably not often at the expense of humanity. And that's going back to that faithfully investing in your body, faithfully investing in the bodies of your neighbors, 
And many, many of the problems we have today physically are the result of modern medicine and the influence that pharmaceutical institutions that make millions, billions of dollars off of you have on the medical society. So you would want to be going not only homeschooling, home health, doing this in congregations, looking and finding out what works, what uh, makes you healthier, what makes you better. Uh, I mean, literally, one of the conversations you should have when you go to church, because it should be a conversation and not merely you sitting there listening to a sermon, is what about diet? What about uh, intermittent fasting? What about vaccinations? What about GMOs? What about, you know, spraying your food? What about growing your own food? Uh, what about, you know, feeding GMOs to cattle instead of feeding grass-fed beef? People are telling you now grass-fed beef is better. Uh, so that is actually a conversation that should take place in church because the what you come out, whatever you decide in that process... That's going to be what you feed and invest in your body, and that's going to affect your family, and that's going to affect your society. And so you're looking to find real solutions out there from one end of life's experience to the other. And so these attributes and behaviors and characteristics of a particular social group is what we call culture. So now we're going to take a look at South Africa. We'll take a little brief look at the history of South Africa. People think, well, the whites went down there and stole the land from the blacks. And that's simply not the case. Uh, the uh, Boers, when they came there, they often inhabited land that was not inhabited before. Uh, and a great many of the blacks that are now enmeshed in the conflict with the Boers uh, are also in, enmeshed in conflicts against other blacks. And they immigrated to South Africa as well. The Zulus were not originally in South Africa. They came down into South Africa. So, And there are some indigenous tribes, but they were living in certain fertile areas. And those are not really the areas that are uh, as in, in controversy today. Uh, the, the, uh, so it's, this is, one of the things I want to make really clear that the problems in South Africa are not black versus white. People want to reduce it down to black versus white. That, that isn't the problem. Uh, in any way, shape, or form. It's, it's culture and ideologies versus culture and ideologies. And, you know, whites are seduced into this, uh, dialectic of black versus whites. Blacks are seduced into the dialectic of black versus white. But that is not the problem. It's not black versus white. It, the problem it goes much more deep into the human uh, soul and psyche and mentality. And uh, it's actually a good versus evil. Uh, although the reality is you can have good people on the white side and bad people on the white side. You can have good people on the black side and bad people on the black side. But when you're dealing with cultures, there's often certain elements of the culture that take over and institute, you know, holocausts. Uh, as we see in uh, the Soviet Union, in Mao, uh, China, in uh, uh, Cambodia, in Germany, uh, because certain cultural characteristics took over society and other parts of society either did nothing or did not do enough 
to prevent this this uh, cultural characteristic of domination from taking over and implementing terrible horrors in society. So you have to really study uh, South African history, and many many of the people in South Africa don't even know their own history. Uh, they they think they they love this narrative that somehow or other the whites came in and took the land away from the blacks and that uh, the native blacks that were there already. That's not the case any more than that's really not the case throughout the American history that somehow whites came here and took all the land from all the Indians. For one thing, all the land wasn't inhabited by the Indians. Many of the Indians died out because of diseases. But then many whites died off because of diseases that the Indians had that uh, they were not used to. So there was the the clash of these two societies uh, introduced diseases on both sides of the sphere that caused the deaths of millions and millions of people. But yet still more whites came. And the reality is, is that many of the Indians welcomed the whites with open arms because they feared other Indians. Uh, because, I mean, you had uh, Aztecs killing tens of thousands of people a year uh, in in ritual uh, slaughter and uh, making war on other people. And, of course, along the uh, eastern coast, uh, tribes would invade other tribes uh, in their in their constitution of the five tribes or seven nations, uh, they had uh, the idea of manifest destiny. That they any tribe that did not go along with their constitution, they would completely enslave and and uh, destroy and disarm that tribe. It was, it, I, I would say it was written in, but at least it was recorded in their interpretation of the original uh, constitution of the five tribes. I don't believe that that was the original intent of that constitution, but that's what it morphed into. So it wasn't whites who created manifest destiny. It was the Indians had already created it. Uh, and I'm not saying that the whites did not have that idea. They certainly did, but they also were, uh, corrupted by the idea of divine right of kings which was not always the case in Europe. Uh, that was quite the opposite at one time, that every man was king in his own home, in, in his own castle. Uh, but then they they moved away from that into another cultural perception that somehow there was a divine right in kings and we should all be under the authority of a king who could rule over us. That's not really... that. That's a, a major change in a cultural perception. And uh, and then if you look on our Free Church Report book, you can see uh, we have Lady Godiva on the front cover. And we, if you go in there and read why we put Lady Godiva on the front cover of the Free Church Report, you'll get a perspective that uh, you probably never got anywhere else of who Lady Godiva really was and what she was really doing because she never got on a horse and rode naked through the streets. That was a story made up over a hundred years after she died by some monk who had way too much time on his hands. That's not what she was all about, but you'll have to go and read the book to find out what she was all about. And you get the book free online on our websites. Uh, you don't have to buy anything. We're sharing you information you will not get anywhere else 
But we're doing this in hopes that you begin to design and invest in your own society in a way that will strengthen your culture, will bring virtue rather than vice to your society, will preach the gospel of the kingdom to every creature creation that you you establish within your society. And we believe it will make your society stronger. But anyway, let's get to some of the questions. We'll probably not finish them in this hour, but uh, we'll just continue in our next programs and we'll eventually put this together as a series. But the first question is, there are so many different denominations today in Christianity. Why is that? Uh, this is actually a series of questions. It goes on to say, "Don't uh, didn't Jesus Christ just uh, start one church, his church? What is the church exactly, and can churches today really be called churches when compared to the church established in the first century by Christ? Well, actually, I could give you yes or no answers on that. Yes, there are 40,000 different denominations today, and there is really only one common denominator in the church established by Jesus Christ, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul preached Jesus Christ first. And then he began to explain what that meant. The same as Moses gave us the Ten Commandments that he received from God. And the Ten Commandments were not really a new idea. Uh, Almost everything in the Ten Commandments already existed in the laws of Egypt, in the Maharats. There's about 64 of them. And what they simply did was reduce a great deal of those basic laws that were in Egypt down to the Ten Commandments. And so it was a kind of a Reader's Digest version of the, those laws of the Mara. But more important, it was in the concept of this, that what, which was a kind of a new idea in relationship to what they had seen in Egypt, where now you were not able to go to a single pharaoh who could exercise authority and compel the offerings of the people by taxing them 20% of their labor. That's what the Pharaoh could do. He could take 20% of your labor away and finance the operation of social welfare in society. That's where the Pharaoh got power as the Pharaoh instead of just a rich man. He And everybody in Egypt went under this. So everybody in Egypt had to pay 20% of their labor into the government of the Pharaoh And then he was to provide benefits to society in the time of famine or difficulty or dearth or any kind of shortage. And he was to take care of them. But that empowered him and eventually corrupted him. And uh, he began to wage war with the excess money, etc., etc. And the bondage of Egypt uh, included a number of different points. And later on in the Bible, it tells you in Deuteronomy 17 that you should... If you want to have a ruler who can exercise authority, because in Israel they had no ruler who could exercise authority. They were free souls under God. This is a different kind of culture, different kind of way. But if you want to alter your culture so that you have a single ruler or a group of rulers who can exercise authority one over the other, you need to write down certain limitations to that power because he's going to become corrupted by that power. And they give you five things to write down and read to him every day. And you know he couldn't have a standing army. He couldn't accumulate gold and silver. 
he couldn't make trees with foreign governments. And uh, one of the things that he was, he, he had to be one of you. He couldn't be a foreigner. But the other thing is he could do nothing to return you to the bondage of Egypt. And what was the bondage of Egypt? Where the government owned all the land. It literally owned your cattle. You got them back, but you only got a legal title back uh, to your land and to the cattle. And so the government still held control over the property. It was the actual true owner of the property, and you had a legal title. Therefore, you had to pay, in many countries, you had to pay a use tax because you don't own what they call the beneficial interest or use. And But anyway, you were to do nothing to return the bondage of Egypt where all the gold and silver was in the treasury of the pharaoh and you used something else as exchange. But that is what every country in the world has done. They've all returned to the bondage of Egypt because they don't know the ways of the true church which was the government of Jesus Christ. And we'll tell you what that was when we come back. So, what can really be called a church today? Uh, what should be called uh, a church today? Well, the church, the word church has taken on, I mean, there's a church of Satan. And I assume that that was established by Satan. <laughs> I would assume because it's called the church of Satan. Uh, but the, the church uh, that we see in the New Testament was established by Christ. And still to this day, if you look up the definition, in, at least in a legal dictionary of the word church, it will say the church in its most general sense is the religious society founded and established by Jesus Christ to receive, preserve, and propagate his doctrines and ordinances. Remember that that word creature we said there that actually means something that you create or establish is also translated ordinance. And so doctrine is just a a word that means teachings. So the teachings and ordinances of Jesus Christ, established by Jesus Christ, is the uh, formation of that religious society that he founded. So what's a religious society? Well, what's religion? Religion today, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's what you think about a supreme being. But 200 years ago, the definition of religion uh, was the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. So religion has been reduced from a duty to what you think. And that's that's a considerable change, in my opinion. And so that's one of the major problems with the modern religion today is modern religion is really just what you think. It's not the pious performance of a duty. And uh, the word pious even has to do with family and who's your father. It's a, a patrimonial duty. Uh, that's when they say a pious duty. They're saying a patrimonial duty to God, your father, and your fellow man who is the children of God. So that's that's what the church is supposed to be doing is performing that duty. Uh, according to what Jesus Christ and, and the way in which Jesus Christ said to do it. Now, the word church that we see in the New Testament is simply translated from the word ecclesia, which is the Greek word for called out. So Jesus called out certain men, and he says you know, that they were to be in the world but not of the world. So they're called out of the world to perform a certain task, which is that religious duty. And that religious duty is the care of, of the needy of society in a way that is in conformity 
with the doctrines and ordinances of Jesus Christ, which include what Moses said about the Ten Commandments. You know, you're not to do it through covetous means. Peter says if you do it through covetous means, you'll become merchandise and you'll curse your children, which usually means you'll put your children in debt. You will pass it on to them. And of course, that's what everybody has done. They've they've gone to men who exercised authority one over the other and they have cursed their children with debt because those men in authority have borrowed against your future and therefore the future of your children in order to provide you with benefits today, which is, again, a violation of the Sabbath idea of working first and then taking your rest. They're taking their rest, and then they owe a debt in the future. So, anyway, the church, Jesus said, you're not to be, when he appointed the kingdom, the government, to his disciples, who became apostles, he said, you're not to be like the princes of the other governments who exercise authority, which is in exact conformity with what John the Baptist said. You are to take care of one another, not through force, but through free will offerings. That's the way you're supposed to be taking care of one another. And so, that's what, that's what the duty of his church, the church established by Jesus Christ, is. It's not to make everybody think the same thing about God. God is supposed to be writing on your hearts and your minds through the Holy Spirit. But what it should look like in in real life operation is that you're taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence. That is what the mission of the church, the called out, was to feed his sheep in a particular way, based on faith, hope, and charity. So, if we're not going to do that, that that same word church goes on to be defined as a body or community of Christians that would be followers of Christ, united under one form of government by the profession of one faith and the observance of the same rituals and ceremonies. Well, those rituals and ceremonies include charity and uh, taking care of one another and feeding the poor amongst us at least amongst us maybe not everybody who's poor but at least amongst us taking care of the brethren that we should be doing in in a form of government that is based on free will offerings that's what they say in the old testament free will offerings that's what corbin was was a free will offering when it became a compelled offering under the pharisees it was making the word of god to none effect and this is one of the major complaints of Jesus Christ. And if you don't study the times and and you, you don't know what was really going on, you're not going to understand what Jesus was saying when he said, call no man on earth father, but my father in heaven. And that's where you're supposed to be praying for your daily bread. That's what, you know, the, our father says, give us this day our daily bread. Who are you praying to? Rome? For the free bread of Rome? For the free bread of Jakarta or London or Washington, D.C. or Sydney, Australia or Cape Town, where are you getting your free bread? Are you getting it from men, getting it from men by faith, hope, and charity? Or are you getting it from men by force, fear, and compelled offerings? And this is the distinction of Christianity. This is what Christianity was doing. This is what Christ was establishing. This is the gospel of the kingdom. And you can 
spread that out amongst all sorts of uh, activities it, from fire departments, as we gave you the example earlier, uh, to uh, community watch, to home education instead of public education. Public education is not free education. You simply take away from your neighbors uh, who may not have any children in your school, you take away from them to finance your public education. You know, I heard somebody the other day talking about, uh, they were asking, uh, the same one who was asking questions about socialism was also asking them questions about, uh, should uh, higher education be free in, in America? And they, most of the people were saying, yes, it should be. Did you know, back in, in 1776 and in uh, early 1800s, Higher education was free. You could go to Harvard and not pay a dime in tuition and not have any student loans uh, that would indebt you forever. You would be indebted forever, uh, and, but you, in order to pay that debt was just a matter of charity. You would, you know, they'd hit you up. The alumni committee would write you and say, you know, we need some more funds. And uh, you didn't pay any tuition. <laughs> they wouldn't say that necessarily, but we would like your support. And they got it. And so anybody, it was in their bylaws, anybody could go to their college if they didn't have the funds, but they could keep up the grades. And they, you wouldn't have to pay a thing, and you wouldn't have any student loans. So that's the way it used to be in the culture of America. But now it's got a new culture. The new culture says, borrow money from the government, come out of, you know, four or five, six years of college education, uh, forty, fifty, a hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt, and that debt will follow you to the grave. That's a different culture. That's a different way of doing things. And you know, you look in your own uh, culture of South Africa, and and we're going to get into this and explain where South Africa went wrong, uh, because it's really not any different than where everybody else went wrong. But it doesn't matter that you see where everybody else went wrong. It only matters if you see where you went wrong. Because then you get to repent. You get to say, I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to think this other way with the common denominator of Christ. And, and the reality is, is that even though the whites of South Africa did not, uh, come in and steal the land from the blacks, uh, generally speaking, I'm sure there was some injustices on both sides. Uh, I know there was uh, on both sides of the black-white equation. But uh, there were also good men on both sides. And uh, so that's a matter of individual history. If you're going to start lumping people into identity politics, you're you're going to come up with another holocaust. You have to be seeking the righteousness of God. The, the righteousness of uh, a, a righteous culture and the way in which to deal with things in order to come up with the real answer of what uh, is the solution in that country, which is actually the solution in every country, and it's the solution that Christ was preaching from the beginning. But unfortunately, uh, many of the people in in different countries have strayed from these basic understandings, and they don't realize it. One of the great disservices... Uh, yet it's it's one of the the boasting and 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 uh, there's a catch twenty two exactly how it was done you know you can you can lay out certain parameters that oh they did this or they did that, and that was wrong, 
But it doesn't really work that way because it's about motivation, why they were doing certain things. And that's a mix always. People will do the right thing for the wrong reason and they will sometimes do the wrong thing for the right reason because they really don't understand what's going on. And so that's what we're going to try to look at so that we understand the parameters of these cultural choices that steer society in a particular direction. The the whites of South Africa, when they were in control of the government, they funded huge hospitals, they funded schooling, they funded all kinds of things for the black community. They tried this apartheid thing um, and sometimes were overzealous in that. Um, but the reality was, and they weren't taking all the best farmland for themselves or anything like that, although there was, I'm sure, injustices from time to time. But again, those were on both sides. And, you know, there were blacks being unjust to blacks and vice versa, whites being unjust to whites. There's always going to be unjust people. So you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis to do something about it. But the reality is, is giving them all these benefits often was not in accordance to the ways of the kingdom. It was actually counterproductive. And we can look in America at places like Chicago and places, you know, where LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, started his war on poverty. And he actually degraded the black community by all these free giveaways. He made them addicted to those free giveaways. And that really wasn't the way to do it. You, There is a time where you just have to help somebody in the ditch. You can't just leave them there. But you have to do it in a way that strengthens them, which takes us back to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though there were a lot of people in South Africa that wanted to do the right things, wanted to help them out, wanted to create hospitals, all noble ideas, but they didn't always do it in a way that strengthened the poor. And so therefore now it's weakened whole sections of their society, uh, including some of the white sections of society, because there's a lot of poor whites in Africa. There's no disproportionate, you know, where the whites are all rich and the blacks are all poor. That's not the way it works at all. There are rich black men in Africa and in South Africa, and there are poor men in Africa and South Africa. Uh, this has to do with a lot of individual family choices as much as it does with the general cultural choices. So, uh, we'll, we'll look at it in more detail, but in order to keep moving along here, uh, we should understand that if you're helping out a section of society, whether black or white or Indians or whatever, um, and you're doing it in an improper way that does not strengthen that segment of society, uh, then now you are doing them an injustice. It looks like you're doing them a favor because you're giving them and giving them and giving them. But you're actually not doing it right in a right way. You're doing it in a way that weakens them. And so what is the way that strengthens them? Well, hopefully that will become obvious as we get farther into this uh, so that we understand what Christianity was really all about. Many people have a private view or opinion of Christ. They believe they know Christ. But the Pharisees thought they knew Moses. But Jesus said they did not know Moses. And because they did not know Moses, they did not know him. Well, the reality is a lot of people uh, people think that Moses and Jesus were preaching two different things. They actually think that Paul 
was preaching something different than Jesus. And when Jesus says, not those who say, but those who do it the will of the Father, they discount that. Because they said, Paul said, all we have to do is believe. But Paul's word for belief included doing. And he makes that very clear that people who aren't doing what Christ said, that are doing contrary to what Christ said, they're acting, uh, you know, gossipers and backbiters and all these, have nothing to do with them. They have, you know, the covetous have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So, you know, and we can't go through all this, but we have gone through much of this in our studies on Romans and and Corinthians and, and many of the other epistles that you understand Paul in the context of Jesus Christ because Paul preached Christ first. In Matthew 24, 4, we see, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So Jesus is telling us that we can be deceived. In Mark thirteen six, we see the same idea. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and, de- and shall deceive many. Even in 1 John five nineteen, we see, And we know that we are of God. And the whole world lieth in wickedness. Now the whole world, what world is that? (laughs) That lieth in wickedness. And why is that whole world wicked? Because they live by covetous practices. They had, Rome had moved from a republic to a social democracy to an imperial power and a total socialist system where they depended on free bread and circuses provided by the government who exercised authority one over the other. And Christ said, it was not to be that way with you. And unfortunately, in every single nation, across the board, it is that way. They take care of one another through forced contributions, through these institutions of men that are based on covetous practices, on force, and not on faith and charity and love for one another. So, But the good news is, is all you have to do is in your local communities, and, and I recommend that you do it the way Christ said, you gather in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and you start taking care of one another. Start looking and applying the principles, the culture of Christ, to the way in which you take care of one another. And you can start by helping those people that are falling through the cracks of systems that are often bankrupt. They're not helping, you know, they're, they're sending $8,000 a month to somebody with eight children who, uh, it, it, which is ridiculous, uh, and absurd and obscene even, and paying them to take care of their own children. And then if you, if you got the whole stories and, and these are coming to me often by people who are, actually seeing them directly on a first-hand basis, uh, you you will realize that uh, you, you can do this better through faith, hope, and charity. And that's what the church... The church has to repent. And the people of the church have to repent and start thinking a different way and start realizing that the practice of religion is not the practice of what you think about God, but the actual uh, religious practice of taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. That's what religion is. That 
becomes paramount in your culture, in your Christian culture, it will alter you. It will alter your children. It will alter the nature of society. And it will bring the grace and blessings of the Holy Spirit upon you. And you will be upwardly mobile as not only as individuals and as families, but as a society. And you will be gathering together in the name of Christ. But it requires you to sacrifice and to serve according to the purposes of Christ and the doctrines of Christ and the ways of Christ. So in Matthew twenty four twenty four we see, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. So over and over again we see this idea of deception. We can in Revelations twelve nine that talks about uh you know Satan which uh, deceiveth the whole world and casteth uh out into earth and his angels were cast out with him. But that deception, that idea of deception in Luke twenty one eight, take heed that ye be not deceived. Uh and even in, in Second Thessalonians two eleven that talks about uh, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And that lie is is that it's okay to take care of the needs of society through forced contributions. It is not okay. It will alter society. It is a cultural attribute of society that destroys it. What strengthens it is that you take care of one another through daily sacrifice. Because no greater love has a man than he laid down his life for his fellow man. And that laying down of life is that daily sacrifice. There is no bread to rightly divide from house to house unless somebody gives that bread by free will offering, by charity. This is the way it was for Moses. This is the way it was for Christ. This is the way it was in the early church. And this is the way it was in South Africa for a long time. But it, they got away from that. And now, if you if you go back to this this principle and many others that are expressed in the Gospels, once you understand what they were really doing in the early church, it will strengthen your community and it will bring the full armor of God. And they will need that full armor of God in every aspect. But in order to get that, I mean, everybody in every culture and every nation has done wrong. Uh, we are all sinners. We have all gone astray from the ways of Christ, from that religious society that uh, was founded and established by Jesus Christ to receive and preserve and pro- propagate his doctrines and ordinances. We've gone away from that, and we've gone the way of Cain, the way of Nimrod, the way of Pharaoh, the way of uh, of Rome. And we need to change that. But in order to change that, first we have to see that we have done that and our parents have done that. For generations now, we have moved away from helping one another and we need to move back in that direction. That's what repentance is. That's what turning around and going the other direction was. Uh, The early church was a charitable institution and uh, so are the, the modern churches are also charitable institutions, but the early church took care of all the welfare and social security of uh, and Medicare and Medicaid and everything like that and education of uh, the Christian uh, common communion in in this charitable system. 
This was the Eucharist of Christ. They were thankful for the opportunity of giving. In order to do that rightly, you have to forgive others. You have to forgive uh, other people in other societies, other people in other cultures, and other people in other races. You have to forgive them because they know not what they do. Because that unburdens you. And now you, you only have to focus on the righteousness of God, the doing right by everybody, and caring for one another, even to the point of sacrificing yourself. And this will bring that full armor of God. Because we've gotten away little bit by little bit at first, uh, culturally altering the way in which we look at the world and interact with the world until we have degenerated ourselves and our society into something not intended by Christ or God the Father. And so we have to turn around and go the other way. And so there's there's six more questions that we're going to deal with here. And uh, and trying to understand what Christianity was really all about. And and what that, you know, that, that definition of of uh, that legal definition of the church, the body and community of Christians united uh, under one form of uh, government by the profession of one faith. That faith, that is amongst the virtues of mankind. If you look at a list of all the virtues, uh, you know, which are, you know, chastity, temperance, charity, d- diligence, patience, gratitude, humility, at least that's that's one way they describe it. That word chastity has to do with faith, friendship, honor, and uh, and, and and that's in opposition to lust and desiring and wanting something for yourself. It's about sacrifice. Almost all the virtues are about sacrifice. Almost all the vices about selfishness. So anyway, let's let's go into these other questions and look at them one by one in each program. We'll put together a series that will really address a lot of these issues. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.